0: G'day and welcome to Pello Talk. I'm Dave Pello, and tonight we're doing a bit of an experiment. This is the first time I'm going to be doing an interview with a live audience. Now, we're not broadcasting live, but the people who are here are very (coughs) real and very live and coughing. Uh, So, we will uh, do our best to make this a fun experience for everybody, and hopefully, we can repeat this more often. Not only will it be, uh, I think, a better quality video, but it'll actually become a, hopefully, a destination kind of event, that uh, when you can have a Talk Live event near you, it's something fun and different to come to, and we need more of those in politics. Uh, Welcome to the first guinea pig on the couch tonight, uh, Nick Goyran. Now, you're a member of the Legislative Council, which is the upper house in Western Australia. right thanks for having me on the show thank you for coming
1: Mm. now how long have you been a member so this is my 10th year in the Western Australian Parliament I was elected at the September 2008 election uh, because of our system in the upper house I I started in May 2009 and very shortly I'll celebrate my 10th anniversary
2: Mm. Wow well Mm.
0: done
1: congratulations that is uh, not a short
0: stint now you've just gotten back from uh, New Mexico is yes, that correct? that's right. Albuquerque in New Mexico. Albuquerque? Yeah. And we think Woolen Gab is hard to spell. <laughs> now, um, at Albuquerque in New Mexico, you were attending a conference on euthanasia. What was that called?
1: Who organised it? Yeah, so the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, which is a coalition of uh, organisations uh, across the, the, the globe, uh, they get together. Uh, usually once a year or once every two years and they host a conference. This particular one uh, was in uh, New Mexico, one of the states in the United States, and it was there because they are a jurisdiction that's currently actively considering uh, having a, an assisted suicide regime.
0: Now, you've actually done a lot of research um, into euthanasia, the pros and the cons, uh, and my understanding is you've arrived at a position that you're opposed to uh, liberalising laws on euthanasia. Uh, Can you, uh, I guess, outline for us what the current options are? So the laws as they are, what are the options
1: at end of life for residents of Western Australia? So a Western Australian who is suffering from uh, a chronic or a terminal illness, in Western Australia we have one of the best available around the world, systems of palliative care. Uh, This system uh, includes uh, the provision of palliative care in people's homes, or it can uh, take place in a hospice setting, uh, or indeed in a hospital setting. So you have those three different options. And palliative care, for those people who've never heard that word before, basically means end of life care? Yes, um, although, It absolutely does include end-of-life care, but we also have to remember that it is available and often used for people with chronic illnesses, not only those ones with a terminal uh, illness. Uh, So it is available for for both of those uh, categories of individuals. It is very good in Western Australia. Where we fall down in Western Australia is that um, it is uh, poorly accessed uh, around around the, the states. We are a very, very large state and uh, particularly in regional and rural Western Australia, the access to it is variable. And there's a few reasons for that, the size of our geography. Uh, The second thing is the level of knowledge, uh, particularly of GPs Mm. uh, general practitioners. Uh, A lot of them have been trained many decades ago and are not familiar with the most modern, specialized expertly practiced palliative care procedures. And so we find that the evidence is clear that the, the access to it is variable. And so certainly my aspiration is that every Western Australian has access to expertly practised specialist palliative care if they need it. It seems tragic to me that we're exploring
0: radical solutions to problems that already have far less radical solutions that are just either not known or not implemented
1: or not funded properly. Yes, uh, look, even if you are a proponent of assisted suicide and so, so-called voluntary euthanasia, at mm. best it is premature. In In Western Australia, we, we absolutely must get to the, the place where ordinary Western Australians can access specialist palliative care before we even contemplate uh, opening up a regime of assisted suicide yeah so is that one option for end of life yeah access to medical treatment is uh, one of the options that are available uh, refusal of medical treatment is an option that's available to people uh, people ob- obviously are not obliged to to eat and to drink so you can uh, you know withdraw those uh, types of uh, uh, care options mm-hmm. those things are all available to Western Australians at the moment and I should add so is suicide. Now, in the case of suicide, uh, it is legal in Western Australia, quite rightly, the Western Australian Parliament and governments of various persuasions have uh, never uh, condoned it, never endorsed it, never encouraged it. Indeed, we spend a lot of money in suicide prevention strategies, um, but we have to be uh, honest and recognise that it is a choice it is an option available to people at end of life. Unlike the other options, of course, we don't encourage it, we don't endorse it, uh, we don't support it. We actively try and solve it. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, what do you see as the risks? The proposed legislation is um, being
1: drafted, yes? Yes. Uh, well, that that's a matter for the government. It's not they drafted yet? They haven't disclosed it. I don't believe that they have drafted it, but they are in the process of considering what to put in the draft. Right. Yeah.
0: So the legislation can take a variety of, of shapes and sizes, um, and they would be aiming to have an ideal, um, safe kind of legislation um, which liberalises um, euthanasia and assisted suicide. Yes. What would be the potential risks that you think that
1: legislation should try to guard against or cannot guard against? The, the, the risks are enormous and uh, I'll give you one example. Um, prior to my 10 years in Parliament, I was uh, a lawyer for 10 years and one of the areas of practice uh, that uh, I was involved in was medical negligence law. Mm-hmm. Now, you can either act for the plaintiff or you can act for the defendant. I was acting for the plaintiff, in other words the clients who were, uh, who were alleging that medical negligence had occurred. Now, in all of the cases that I had handled, uh, I can say categorically uh, that from that experience, doctors make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Doctors are not infallible. And the problem with these euthanasia and assisted suicide regimes is that everyone, <coughs> including the proponents, says, oh, you must have safeguards but the safeguards are only as good as the doctor who enforces it. Mm -hmm. Usually there's two doctors that are involved in the process. Um, Well, it only takes one of them to get it wrong or to miss something uh, to ensure that the safeguard has has fallen away. So my experience in medical negligence law tells me that two doctors Mm -hmm. is a completely inadequate safeguard when the outcome, if they get it wrong, is a wrongful death of which there can never be any redress or, uh, or recourse for the person. Yeah, it's pretty hard to comp- receive compensation there's, when you're not here. There's no second
0: chances. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, in your study, in your research, in your travels, uh, what examples have you seen in jurisdictions around the world where they've gone down this rabbit trail mm. and they've experimented or, or flirted or, or fully pursued um, the legislation that the West Australian Parliament is now being asked to consider, yeah. um, how has it worked overseas? Because I've heard the, I'll call it generously propaganda, uh, from the pro, pro-euthanasia um, lobby who are saying that all the
1: examples overseas say it works wonderfully. Mm. Uh, well, that can only be said by a person who's never looked at any of those jurisdictions. there There's 14 jurisdictions, only 14 I might add, mm. uh, in, across the whole world, there are 14 jurisdictions uh, where this takes place at the moment. Now, um, I'll start with the Netherlands. Usually we start this conversation in Europe because uh, they were effectively the first country uh, to go down this path. Now, what often happens when you bring up the Netherlands is that somebody like me uh, will say, well, you realise that in the Netherlands, uh, that you know, we wouldn't want to do what they do there because they actually allow euthanasia for the mentally ill. So the proponent will very quickly say, well, look, let's move on from the Netherlands. Let's go to Belgium. I'll say, terrific, you realise in, in Belgium that originally it was only available for adults and then the parliament changed the law to allow it for children. Hmm. Okay, well that's no good, we, we, we won't do the Belgian model then will we? Okay, well where should we go next? Uh, how about Oregon in, in the United States? And, and there I will say to them, well you realise that the data in Oregon from their own health commission confirms that people are taking the poison sometimes years after uh, they were originally given the dose. Or the prescription now keep in mind that in oregon you're only supposed to be able to access it if you've got six months to live well how do you explain somebody taking it two years later if they were only supposed to have six months to live well it has to be either errors in administration or errors in prognosis absolutely Mm -hmm. and so in in oregon we know from their own data so much for the safe laws well it's it makes uh, it makes it clear that safeguards are a myth in oregon Uh, you've got the problems with prognosis You've got complications. Sometimes people think, oh, this euthanasia procedure is going to be very peaceful. There'll be no complications. Well, the the results from uh, Oregon tell us otherwise. And perhaps what's the worst in in Oregon is that there is systemic doctor shopping. So if you don't get uh, the right answer from the doctor that you want, remember you need two doctors to agree. Well, you just keep shopping until mm-hmm. eventually you get a doctor who agrees with you. Do they become known? of who, do, who to go to for so, the right answer? So end? much so that in some of these jurisdictions, it's now been effectively commercialised where they have an organ, you know, an organisation that will say, look, come to us. If you can't get any success from your local doctor, come to us, we will sort this for you. So these are the so-called safeguards in, in those particular jurisdictions. And in the end with the proponents, you know, they duck and they dive and they try and, and uh, skirt these issues. And I just say to them, look, whatever you might think about uh, the Dutch, Uh, or the the model in Belgium or in Switzerland, where effectively there's virtually no rules there, or what some of the American states are doing, what I would ask you to consider is, well, is there an Australian experience that can inform us here? And of course, uh, we did once uh, have uh, a very short experiment in Australia in the Northern Territory. And? And? Well, the Northern Territory uh, experience should be enough for any parliamentarian to immediately know you don't want to go down this path. Why not? What happened? Uh, well, there were a number of casualties, a num- number of wrongful deaths. So I- I'll give you... Wrong- wrongful deaths. Wrongful deaths in the sense that, um, remember, there are these safeguards. So if the safeguards are not fulfilled properly, then therefore it would be a wrongful death. The one example i give you um, this evening is uh, the case of uh, a patient uh, had a uh, condition, mycosis, fungoids. It's like a, uh, a can- cancer in the blood and affects the skin. It's a serious condition. Now, remember two doctors needed to sign off on this uh, euthanasia procedure. The first doctor, of course, was uh, a very well-known doctor, Philip Nischke, who's a massive proponent of euthanasia. Uh, very intellectually honest. I mean, this is a person who will admit that you will have casualties if you have things like this. So he was doctor number one. Now, the second doctor needed to have some experience or qualification in the underlying condition. Now, Nishki went around uh, looking for a second doctor to sign off on this, but the oncologist and the dermatologists said, No, this is not a terminal condition, we're not signing off on this. So, out of desperation, who do they get as a second doctor? Now, remember, mycosis fungoids, cancer in the blood, affects the, condi- the, the skin. The second doctor was an orthopaedic surgeon. Now, I love to go and see an orthopaedic surgeon when I've got a problem with my back, uh, but I don't go and see an orthopaedic surgeon when I've got mycosis, fungoids and, you know, cancer Skin and, and blood. Absolutely not. And that was the so-called safeguard. Now, if that's not bad enough to demonstrate how easy it is to go doctor shopping and effectively ignore the law, well, then who's gonna complain after the event? because your key witness is now dead um, if that's not bad enough this was a, a person who had um, depression uh, and depressive symptoms so when I know that that is the lived experience in my own country mm. it tells me that this is uh, a regime where casualties are guaranteed it's um,
0: yeah, sobering and I, I don't know how anybody can say there's no problems
1: anywhere that this has been tried before? Well, they only say that when they don't look. So I I was involved in a parliamentary inquiry for 12 months. Uh, I was the only one of the eight members of parliament to attend every meeting and every every hearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm the only one of the eight members who's uh, a co-chair of the parliamentary Friends of Palliative Care. And I'm the only one of the eight who previously practiced medical negligence law. Now out of the eight of us, I was the one who then tabled a 248 page minority report and what disturbed me the most about what the rest of the committee did apart from the fact that they didn't attend all the meetings and hearings uh, is that in no part of the committee report do they look at the wrongful deaths in the other jurisdictions now i don't mind if people have a different point of view to me that's the wonderful thing about our democracy yeah yeah but for goodness' sake, at least go and have a look at the wrongful deaths in the other jurisdiction. Dissent is allowed; ignorance is unforgivable. Well, in this case, it's reprehensible.
0: Mm, mm. Absolutely, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by uh, an expert in the medical industry and profession. Welcome back to Pellow Talk. We're discussing euthanasia in the West. In Western Australia, uh, the current parliament is proposing uh, drafting some legislation to liberalise euthanasia and assisted suicide. And uh, joining me now is another guest, Professor Phil Burcham Welcome, Phil, how are you? Thank you very much, Dave. Now, you. you're a professor in pharmacology,
2: is that all? I'm actually an associate professor. An associate professor? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, in pharmacology and toxicology. I just
0: gave you a promotion.
2: Sure. Thanks very <laughs> much. <Well, laughs> check my
0: bank account right? <laughs> so, sorry, pharmacology and...
2: Toxicology. And toxicology. Okay.
0: And you're obviously a medical professional, doctor,
2: basically? I'm actually a scientist trained in pharmacology and toxicology. Okay. So my professional interest is um, making sure that we're using drugs as safely as possible. Um, we've come in a long way in the last 150 years with advances in chemistry, biology, and making better pharmaceuticals. Yeah, sure. But of course, every drug has a potential to cause harm as well as beneficial effects. So... Yep. um toxicologists have the job of trying to make sort of new generations of drugs, just as we have new second-gen, third-gen phones that are better than the old ones. Yeah. Uh, second, third, fourth-gen drugs are usually safer and more effective than earlier ones. So that's how I got interested in this issue of euthanasia, because, you know, my whole career has been motivated by a desire to minimise harm caused by pharmaceuticals, and now we're being taught you know protect human life. and now we're being told that we're going to use drugs to kill people deliberately i mean that's a a real corruption of uh, medical research and the practice of medicine in my view
0: it does seem to me to be a a fundamental break between the relationship between um, medicine doctors carers and their patients the society as a whole that we all of a sudden introduce this element where death is a therapeutic option. Um, and if you're a patient who is perhaps uh, at the end of, you know, it, it, let's say the last decade or two of your life, to, to think that that's one of the options your doctor might be recommending for you or considering as a possibility, has to just fundamentally change the doctor-patient relationship.
2: I think it really corrupts the practice of medicine. Um, it really undermines trust. In, in in your doctor when you know that they are interested in ending your life. I think it's, um, you know, I can't even speak personally on that matter because our families live with a genetic condition for many generations and uh, we we had a daughter born uh, 21 years ago who was affected by our condition. I, I live with it too. It doesn't affect us too badly. We still get by with our life. But we were sort of tricked into going into a... Um, Appointment with a genetic counselor uh, by some pediatricians who sort of led us to believe and this was in a major Eastern Australian hospital Led us to believe that we were going to see a doctor who was interested in treating our daughter and when we got there We found out they were only interested in Making sure we didn't have any more children like her and our daughter was treated openly with contempt and um,
3: oh, that's horrible.
2: I, I have an emotional involvement in this issue yeah. because I think you know my respect for pediatricians went from up there to down there in the twinkling of an eye mm-hmm. yeah and i think once you know people who specialise in geriatric medicine caring for people in the lab stages of life yeah. if the word gets out that they really want to end your life i mean that's yeah. going to really corrupt the practice of gerontology
0: mm. and i have the highest regard for doctors it's a noble profession and that has to be stipulated because um, one of the things I think we're highlighting tonight is the potential for bad doctors, uh, for exceptions to the rule. Um, and, and, you know, having made that stipulation, there are no shortage of hmm. anecdotes. Anybody has probably heard of bad treatment. Um, you know, the, if I, I was actually just following a thread on Twitter today where somebody asked about experiences with miscarriage and and lots of people, lots of women were talking about the absolute callousness that they'd received at the hands of medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so add that potential, might be a 1% chance of the 1% um, or less, but there's, there's a fraction of the medical profession where there are less than perfect people involved mm-hmm. with character deficiencies that make... Um, the scenario where death is added as a therapeutic option, a frightening um, prospect. Have you heard of any scenarios, Phil, where the drugs that have been provided to help someone kill themselves, so assisted suicide, here's your drugs, go find a park or go home and and in your own time and peace, um, do what you want to do. Have you heard any horror stories
2: um, Eighteen months or so ago, we had a visit from a good friend of mine, uh, who's a palliative care physician in Oregon, and uh, he's recently wow. retired. But he's a tough
0: place to be in that business. Yeah,
2: and he told me some pretty shocking stories of his experiences. Um, just, and he spoke of that general corruption of his his career that, that followed in the wake of the Death with Dignity bill in Oregon, because it said it immediately sort of. Um, Uh, segregated his patients into three basic groups. Firstly, there was one group of uh, families who wanted to use the Death with Dignity Bill to get rid of unwanted elderly uh, relatives. Mm. He thought that was about a third of his interactions. But at the other end of the extreme, about a third of the families felt that um, they'd completely lost trust in the medical profession. And every time he wanted to prescribe a drug, even with, with good intent, uh, to, to alleviate suffering, you know, appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the families were treating him very distrustfully and didn't want him coming near their loved ones with a syringe, you know. And so... Wow. And then the remaining third sort of fell in the middle and didn't really care either way or the other. But it sort of... It, it polarised the, the patient community, <coughs> and for him's mind, that sort of made medicine less enjoyable and less rewarding. And that's an important point to make because... Mm-hmm. Medical journals are full of uh, studies of high rates of burnout in the, in the medical profession, high rates of suicide, uh, high rates of marriage failure, all sorts of problems. Doctors are wonderful people, they're very driven people, but they're also exposed on a daily basis to, to often the worst that life throws at us, day in, day out. It's a very demanding career. <coughs> now, we go down this route of putting the power of life or death in their hands. It's only going to increase... Uh, those sort of pressures for many doctors mm-hmm. and, and
1: they you know the doctors as we discussed earlier they can make mistakes but also some of them will have a bias and so how easy is it for them to steer someone into a particular decision mm-hmm. i mean here you have uh, an associate professor uh, who had to sort of i guess push back against the medical fraternity with regard mm-hmm. to your own family so a very well educated person right? who's probably got the self-esteem and the self-confidence to push back yeah. and also <coughs> the medical knowledge and the scientific knowledge to say, well, hang on a second, what you're telling me is not quite right. Yeah, it's what such happens, a good point. How what many, happens if you're not in yeah. in film situation? How many people are
0: not confident to argue with their doctor? And so mm. they get steered into Each a particular dis, d, direction. Yeah, Not confident and not equipped mm. to argue with their doctor and push back.
2: Yeah, mm. And I think and the other side of it is too... It, can't help but corrupt clinical knowledge because, you know, we've come so far in pharmacology, we've got some pretty terrific painkillers now that we wouldn't have had, you know, even 60 or 70 years ago. So And we've come a long way in understanding how to use those drugs effectively mm. to alleviate pain, especially even during the dying process. Um, but when we say we're just going to, to end someone's life with a drug, we're really saying we don't want to... Provide clinical care for that person in in the final stages of their life, and, and we're making ourselves, in a way, dumber, I think, right. by doing it. because you're no longer step. looking for solutions. we're no longer looking for solutions. We're no longer trying to make things better.
0: Yeah. And uh, tell me, can you put a can you even roughly quantify uh, what percentage of people at end of life who might be looking for for availing themselves of, of this legislation if it enacts? What percentage of people can't be made comfortable what, where their suffering is too extreme, their conditions are too uh, unaccessible by medication? What percentage of people can't be helped and possibly this would be more compassionate for in some views?
2: Yeah, look, to my mind, it's only a few percent of patients at best. One or two? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, Nick might have an opinion on that. He's... Yeah,
1: well, they, they often quote two percent. That's the commonly used percentage. But okay. understand where the 2% comes from. The, the 2% is, is data that has been collected uh, that takes into account all of the cases. So in other words, the bad providers and the good providers are uh, all put into the same data set, into the same... The people who aren't good suit, at palliative like, care. Or have made mistakes. Uh, I remember in, during the inquiry, we had one of the specialists come and, and, and speak to us. And he was horrified. He comes into a room and he's he's seen this patient and and, and she's, you know, almost like blown up like a balloon full of of fluid. And he's saying, what are you guys doing here? Now, I think to myself, well, what would have happened if that particular person, that specialist, had not intervened in that particular case? What would have happened is that the the patient would have had a horrible death the family would have seen that and said, well, this is the best that palliative care can provide. Mm. Uh, we want euthanasia, thanks. Well, it wasn't the best that euthanasia could provide. Thankfully. Palliative care. Palliative care could provide. It's, it was uh, just so happened. It was a failure. It was, yeah. And, and thankfully, in this case, it was remedy. But think of how many other times there would be a case where it wasn't mm. remedy. So the 2% yeah. is an average figure. It's not talking about what would happen if you have access to expertly practised specialist palliative care. And I'm yet to find somebody who can demonstrate me to me that uh, if you get an expert uh, specialist practising that they are unable to treat a particular condition.
0: Wow, okay. Well, we'll be right back after this break with our final guest for the evening. Welcome back to Pallotalk. Thanks for uh, watching and uh, thanks for watching this long if you're still with us. Uh, this is a very important discussion. And it can be a very difficult discussion and a very emotive discussion. And uh, it's really important that we acknowledge those emotions but don't make irrational decisions. We have to be objective about this. And and so the truth is probably the most important thing here because the laws that uh, are considered, if passed, will affect the entire society that's under them. And uh, the laws aren't made for individuals. Uh, My next guest tonight, though, is Bill Muhlenberg. Bill Muhlenberg has been on Talk twice already, uh, repeat offender, and uh, he was a must invite for tonight. A, because he happened to be in Perth, which was a happy coincidence, and B, because he's actually written a book on euthanasia, the challenge of euthanasia. And uh, you can grab that from BillMuhlenberg.com. No AU? No. BillMuhlenberg.com. Um, so that's there's lots of other books that he's written and he is an absolutely prolific mm. uh, contributor to the cultural discussions and debates going on mm. in Australia sometimes two articles a day as well as many books and many media appearances so Bill thank you for joining us tonight thank you for having me first applause uh, the first two guests didn't rate. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, like, like Two East Coast, two mm. West Coast. Uh, it's, it's great being here at Sheridan College tonight. But Bill, you've actually lived in some of these nations that are now jurisdictions with legalised euthanasia mm. and assisted suicide.
2: Yep.
0: Um, firstly, what was the welcome like in anticipation of the liberalization of euthanasia laws in the Netherlands.
3: Well, it wasn't all that welcome, certainly for many elderly people. Mind you, I lived there uh, about five years in the 80s, so that proceeded when the actual legalization took place.
0: But people were already worried. Well, yeah,
3: well, that's the whole point. Even then, there were a lot of people who were very worried indeed. We had many elderly people, for example, moving to Belgium, which was a bad move because in 2002, Both the Netherlands and Belgium legalized euthanasia. But yeah, they're going to Germany or other countries because they really were worried. If I go see my doctor for some health issue, do I know I'm even going to come back? So even back in the 80s and 90s, this was a real concern for many of the elderly. And of course, now that it has been legalized, it's just mushroomed since then. Uh, One of the government reports, the Rummelink report, was already sounding ominous notes quite a while ago as to how, uh, despite all the promises of strict safeguards, uh, it's, it's uh, open slather once you Doesn't Andrew Denton say oh, that oh. the Remelink report was a glowing endorsement of those laws? Well, he obviously hasn't read it. Uh, it was very much concerned even back then about the number, well, the main thing being the number of people who were being bumped off who didn't specifically ask for it. Mm. Many Mm. against their will. Uh, And so again, that was going back 20 years ago. Let's look at today. And the Dutch keep pretty good records, don't they? Well, they're good at some things and record keeping is certainly one of them. Mm. Uh, So we should be learning from their experience. Uh, Something like 30% of uh, all euthanasia deaths now in Holland are Well, they're not volitional. They're not voluntary. They're being either forced upon them by some family members, by doctors, medical community. Uh, So something like around 10% of all deaths in Holland now uh, due to euthanasia. Belgium, again, these are small countries, but still the figures are shocking. Uh, 250% increase in Belgium in the last 10 years of euthanasia deaths. Uh, something Almost 2,500 last year in Belgium. Again, small country. So the numbers are quite alarming, uh, and yet we keep not learning from these experiences. So 2,500? Roughly in the last, well, last year. And 30% of those were involuntary? Well, Sorry, I first began with Holland. Thirty uh, percent. Is it there. fair to assume a similar? Well, thing? look, it would be. It would be. The uh, countries are very similar in many ways, and so yeah, the, probably the figures in Belgium would be just about in that camp. Yeah. So, guess what's that? Seven hundred
0: and fifty.
3: Well, yeah,
0: yeah. Ballpark. Good question. How many involuntary euthanasia deaths is a acceptable number?
2: Oh.
1: Well, it should be uh, zero. The proponents will quickly jump on the use of the language involuntary uh, and start to discuss the difference between involuntary and without consent. But look, without uh, getting into
0: the... Well, I'm interested in what the rebuttals are to our arguments. Yes. Like what what are they going to say? Because we don't have a, a euthanasia advocate here speaking for them. So what is their rebuttal to...
1: Well, that, they, they would say that uh, those deaths that you're talking about are people who are unable to provide consent mm-hmm. and so a decision is being made on their behalf mm-hmm. and so then they will effectively say, well is that involuntary or is that somebody uh, uh, not being able to provide consent? Now seems like semantics to me. Well, uh, I think that I think that you've got a case there because in the end uh, uh, we're supposed to provide informed consent for mm-hmm. any medical procedure. And yes, it is true that if you um, lose capacity, that uh, family members, uh, depending on the hierarchy, can make decisions on your behalf. Or if you have signed an advanced health directive, then the doctors should uh, abide by those uh, arrangements that you've made, those directives that you've made. That That is true. But should somebody else be terminating your life or making that decision without your consent, uh, and indeed, in, in the Netherlands, there was the, the case recently where somebody had expressed mm. a desire for euthanasia, uh, subsequently lost capacity, and uh, they proceeded. The family and the doctor proceeded to the point of holding the yeah, patient that, down, and the yeah. patient she's says, "No, no, I don't want to do this." Yeah. Now, even if you think that she provided consent finished the procedure anyway, oh yes, despite her, she's yeah. dead. Yeah. yeah. But even if you think that it was, uh, you know, her uh, wishes should be respected initially, mm. when somebody says to you, no, no, stop, don't continue with this lethal injection, mm. the fact that they could even continue after that, and then people still defend it. Uh, I think if you're defending that, really, you're a lost cause on this mm. debate. I think the, uh,
0: you know, just from my perspective, the, the case for... Um, without consent, care uh, is justified when it's a life-saving measure. If somebody's unable to say, yes, please amputate my leg if that's the only thing that's possible to save my life, if they're they're not able to give that consent, I think it's fair to assume they would want life-saving measures. Uh, I think it's highly irrational to suggest that without the ability to give consent,
1: you can infer they would want to die worse when we've got an inheritance impatience problem amongst some people in our community so some of these people are in such a hurry to access their inheritance Mm -hmm. um you know where is the safeguard Mm -hmm. to ensure that that isn't influencing the decision that's being made and and how could you ever police something like that yeah hence why you just simply can't have a regime because the regime will always be inherently unsafe Now you've lived in America
0: as well. Did you live near Oregon or in Oregon?
3: Well, I lived in Washington just next to Oregon uh, for a short time. Mind you, I lived in New Mexico as well for a while, which is now debating it. Uh, Look, same thing. All these jurisdictions, strict safeguards. Don't worry, no slippery slope. There's not gonna be any problems. Oregon is really the test case of how bad things can be and it's getting worse all the time. As we say, uh, children, now becoming more routine, certainly the mentally ill...
1: euthanizing
3: children in well, Oregon. <laughs> well, I
1: think that's uh, that's limited to the Netherlands and Belgium, but, it, but in Oregon, they, they certainly well, have been... Well, there have
3: been calls by some Oregon politicians for mm-hmm. this to start happening. Yes. And, well. and this is the danger. Like, you might be saying these are really safe laws now,
0: yeah. but who are the politicians going to be in the next parliament, oh, right, and right, what right. are they going to call for? Hmm. Because now the bell has run... Okay. Society has changed fundamentally. We accept death as therapy, mm-hmm. and it's a small step, then not a big step like we're considering now. A small step to go, What about kids? Yeah. If it's compassionate yeah. for adults, why isn't it compassionate for kids? Yeah.
3: Yeah. And again, certainly the Netherlands and or, or uh, uh, Belgium happening, but bear in mind some of our Australians. We've mentioned Nitsky uh, in my book, actually, I document about 20 years ago, he was in the States. He actually did an interview with a conservative magazine, and back then he was seriously proposing we should be selling suicide pills in the supermarkets, right? So you get your 15-year-old girl, just broke up with her boyfriend, depressed, bummed out, goes in the supermarket, gets whatever, a pack of donuts, and uh, you know, oh, there's the suicide pills. I mean, come on, the West has got these huge problems with youth suicide, and some of our biggest advocates of youth Asia. Well, at least they're candid. They're they're honest about what they want yeah. to do. This is not about end of life terminal cases. Just the hard few cases. This is they want open slather, and they're quite clear about
0: that. It seems to be just totally uh, split personality that society is on one hand yeah. saying suicide is a problem here's the suicide hotline don't hurt yourself are you okay day yes. and let's
1: make it easier for people to kill themselves hmm. Boy. and
3: the yeah. proponents never
1: engage on that distinction so why is it that an able-bodied person we would straight away say oh no no under no circumstances you know jump off the bridge or take that poison or anything like that we want you to access our prevention strategies and call the hotline and the helpline and so forth but if the person has a chronic or terminal illness suddenly we say well actually that helpline's not really for you you know let's open the door how about we get two doctors to sign off on your death we agree your life is less worth well that has to be the implication
0: how Mm. yeah and this is the problem
2: i think another um, aspect of all this that worries me is that so much of the appeal of euthanasia argument rests on this idea of autonomy. And I think we've got a really toxic view of autonomy in the Western world at the moment that's tearing us apart. And uh, in many ways, you know, it's, it's, it's nonsense to think that we're autonomous creatures. We, I didn't control, control the day I was born or where I was born, who my parents were. I couldn't control my skin color or my ethnicity. All of that was beyond my control. And yet we seem to cling to this idea that I'm going to control how I leave this planet. Mm. And, and the danger of that way of thinking is that it actually um, neglects the fact that we're really created to be social creatures. Sociality is a really important part of human existence. Right. And it's by seeing my neighbours struggle successfully with the, the hardships that life throws at every one of us mm-hmm. that we become stronger, more persistent, more resilient uh, individuals. And one of the things that's fascinating about these American states that have legalised euthanasia and uh, Aaron Kerriati, uh, he's an um, academic, teaches uh, clinical psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, has drawn attention to this. He calls it the social contagion theory, uh, that once you legalise physician-assisted suicide, there is an inevitable increase in suicide rates, generalised suicide rates in those uh, American states where... Um, PAS has being because legalized, the law is sent and it's, to it's, it's this loss of resilience. This yeah. everything's, life's too hard for me. I may as well knock myself off. That mm. ripples through communities, mm. and and the press has known this for a long time. You know, the press has had these um, uh, restrictions on when when a famous person commits mm. suicide. They won't put the details mm. in, the, in the media mm. because it's known mm. that famous suicides have ripple effects mm. uh, in society, and this is one really sad aspect of euthanasia in yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, one of, one of the uh, ironies about the use of autonomy as an argument is that when we go back to the existing choices that are available to Western Australians, as an autonomous individual, it, it is true that you have the liberty to suicide. You do have that autonomy and you yeah. do have that liberty. What they're asking us to give is a licence yeah, yeah. for suicide yeah, yeah and it cannot be an autonomous act if you rely on somebody else you need the doctor you need the doctor to to, to give you the injection or to give you the cup of poison so at that point it's no longer a, a strictly autonomous act and this goes to your point that we are an interdependent society and again this is uh, a, an important philosophical discussion that is never engaged with by the other side all they do is they say autonomy is king in fact would you believe that the title of the committee report in the Western Australian Parliament was My Life, My Choice? Well, if that's really the mantra and the motto, why do we have suicide prevention initiatives in Western Australia? It makes no sense.
0: It, um, uh, a slightly humorous but effective illustration of the, the preposterous proposition that the law only affects you if it's your choice is uh, the assertion that perhaps we should make it um, possible for someone to pee at one end of the pool. Uh, (laughs) But but that always affects everybody. It's just not possible to make a law just for you to pee at your end of the pool. (laughs) It's going to affect everybody, whether you like it or not. Laws cannot be made for individuals. Laws are made because... Decisions affect everybody in the pool.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Bill, tell us a little bit about your book. Do you want to, I'm sure you read it, but... <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, I had a look at it at one point.
3: Uh, look, it's a series of books I've been doing on the hot potato ethical issues, uh, the kind of things you're not supposed to talk about in polite society. So I did a few on homosexuality already. I did one on abortion. So this is one of the more recent ones, and like all of the books I've done, they're kind of in two parts. Uh, uh, The first half is simply all the secular data, so medical, scientific, you know, uh, nothing whatsoever religious. So if you've got non-Christian friends or you're non-Christian watching this right now, you say, give me a good secular case for why I should be concerned about, well, in this case, Legalizing euthanasia or abortion and so on. Well, hopefully it's all there Second half of the book however for those who are of a more religious bent Well, then I'll give you the the biblical theological arguments as well So, you know, if you're Joe Pagan, you know, rip the half the second half of the book throw it away Keep the first half. I would uh,
0: thoroughly recommend if you're considering leaving this life and entering the next, mm. you might want to read both of oh, us. Probably
3: you should. <laughs> yes,
2: yes.
3: So, yeah, I mean, we need to be able to do both. Obviously, if you're going on the secular media, uh, you can't just run with a lot of Bible verses. Right. One, right? So if you go on QA on a Monday night, you need to know your secular arguments. I think you'd
0: want to be incredibly confident that there's absolutely, certainly nothing after this life.
3: Well, well sure.
0: If, you, if you're absolutely sure that this is as bad as it gets.
3: Well, that's right, but uh, for those in a secular society where that kind of argument doesn't cut it, well, we need to have the, the facts, we need the stats, the figures, and so on. We need to look at what's been happening overseas, Benelux is your starting point, uh, but American jurisdictions, it's getting quite frightening. Uh, and it's not just numbers, but as you say, the stories, put a human face to some of these stories where people don't want to be put down, but they are being, sometimes again, mm-hmm. by their own family members, eager for that inheritance. So mm-hmm. this is not just uh, you know theoretical stuff. This is happening constantly uh, in my own state of Victoria. Sadly, we went down this uh, path as well last year, Dan Andrews, the premier, he said, we'll have the strictest guidelines and safeguards in the world. Um, sorry, the very moment you effectively smash the, the basis of medicine, do no harm, right? Which is exactly what you do when you legalize euthanasia. you have ready to undercut yourself on any kind of safeguards. The whole thing is gone. Mm. All you have left is the slippery slope. Mm. The funny thing about that is that in um, Western
1: Australia, the government is proposing to base the legislation that it is Mm. in the process of drafting on the Victorian model. Mm -hmm. And yet Victoria is yet to commence. It's going to commence in a couple of months time. So before we even had any lived experience, I mean, I'm confident but there will be casualties in oh, in, in Victoria. Of course okay, but imagine that for a moment I'm wrong. Has there ever been a uh, no, jurisdiction where there have been absolute, no casualties? Absolutely not. In every single jurisdiction, there are wrongful deaths. Yeah. But imagine for the moment that um, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. The Victorians have, in, have invented the one and only ever created safe system yes. of the euthanasia. Wouldn't we want to wait and make sure that they
0: got That's it right, right. before That's we right. go down that path? Give it a
3: few years. Yeah.
0: Are there any <laughs> obvious problems that? Um, you've seen in, in the bill that will be enacted in Victoria, other
1: than your opposition to euthanasia? Well, a, again, at, at the outset, it's about uh, the, the, uh, the guarantee that safeguards will fail because it's relying on a group of fallible individuals.
0: But other than general objections, is there anything specific in, in the, the Victorian Vi- legislation the that, Victorian that, that you can think, oh, wow, that... I know it. Is the, the, the premise of the question is: Is there a good model of legislation? But are there any particular like, wow, they legislated that?
3: Well, bear in mind, both our two thousand eight abortion law, which was not only the worst in Australia, but uh, you say
0: our, because you're from well, sorry, the Socialist state of yes, Victoria, state.
3: People's Republic of yeah. Victoria. That's right, yeah. with yeah. a K, not uh, a. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, 2008. Victoria passed uh, this incredibly bad abortion law, uh, which was amongst the most liberalised in the world. And similar now with the uh, euthanasia law. In both cases, the numbers sadly weren't with our side. We we couldn't mount the numbers to defeat it. So a number of amendments in both the abortion law and the euthanasia law were put forward. I mean, sensible. Uh, You know, not even radical amendments, Uh, you know, not suing doctors who may have conscientious objection to uh, providing abortion uh, To a patient or even referring for abortion and so on every single one of those amendments in both the abortion Euthanasia bill were knocked back I mean even sensible things which even some of the proponents Have you got any examples in mind that you can recall? Well, as I say simply protecting the doctor a pharmacist a nurse, those From who... From conscientious objection. Well, that's right. All that was put up, all that was defeated. So if you follow mm-hmm. suit, you're, you're, it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's...
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Can I just bring up another thing too? You, you raise the issue of religion, and I know we're good Australians, and we know how to talk about religion in public, but I think there is a religious dimension to my concern because um, one of the things I'm interested in is the uh, history of my field and the, the history of... Uh, medicine in particular the use of drugs and one of the things you find in the greco-roman world which Peter singer of course is a great enthusiast for getting rid of all that influence of Christianity that is an influential philosopher from Australia mm-hmm. who wants us to go back to a greco-roman worldview but you look at the greco-roman world one of the things we find that um, there was a very low respect for the sanctity of human life oh, yeah. and, and that poisoning was a was a big part of of um, Uh, Greco-Roman society. In fact, they had law courts that dealt with nothing else than poisoning cases because people were all poisoning each other. And um, there were even the forerunners of today's pharmacists, um, the pharmakia, were actually specialists in using concoctions to kill people, to induce um, hallucinations, but also uh, to, to help you if you were sick. And one of the things that the early Christian leaders stood against when they came into contact with the Greco-Roman worldview, Paul and the great Christian leader, and also John, both of them prohibited pharmakia, this practice of using God's really? good gifts, God's medicines, uh, in a illicit way to take life. And so, in a way, what we're doing in the, in the euthanasia debate is we're, we're putting society back thousands of years because it was actually... The influence of that Christian Another uh, worldview laid the
0: foundation sorry.
2: for medical science. And wow. I think we're doing something really dangerous yeah. and really dumb. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nick, uh, one of the questions from the audience tonight is, how affordable is palliative care in Western Australia at the moment to ordinary people? Uh, well,
1: it is available to, to Western Australians largely at no cost to them. Um, but to the taxpayer, it's incredibly expensive, uh, and I would say that if we are a truly compassionate society, we should be willing to, pre- to and be prepared to pay for every Western Australian who is in need of palliative care to have access to it. So is it sufficiently funded by the Western Australian government? Ab- absolutely not, and and. Uh, That's not a criticism necessarily of the current government because they've inherited it from previous governments, of course, but we know that when we compare the number of palliative care specialists that we have in Western Australia compared to other jurisdictions in Australia, we need at least double, but depending on who you talk to, up to quadruple the amount that we have at the moment. So we're miles off. And at the very least, we need to get that right before we even start this conversation. Exactly. Mm. That, that seems obvious. How how can you not
0: fully fund the solutions that are currently available before you entertain more solutions, let alone such fatal
1: solutions? Well, that's, Otherwise, it's a fake choice because you you again you're effectively steering a person. It's what, what you were saying you, before. It's fake choice. choice. <laughs> we're yep. giving up. We're, we're robbing ourselves decisions. of intelligence we're and in achievements. achievements that yeah,
0: are yeah. within our reach. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Mm. What, what's the technical difference? Um, Phil, I'll ask you this question. What's the, what's the distinctions between euthanasia and assisted suicide and what are the, the ethical implications or problems varying between
2: each? Um, I'm not sure there is a really profound difference there. I mean, Nick might be in a position to answer that, but um, the, it, the it, it assumes theory. a difference. In, euthanasia implies an act being done on someone to kill them. Um, physician-assisted suicide implies that you're the one, the, the doctor provides the, the medication and you take it. But, That's exactly right. Uh, of course, uh, you know, my friend in Oregon says many of the um, people who are going through the death with dignity process have things like motor neuron disease. They're unable to pick up a, 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 a vial of poison. So how who's, to, who's giving it to them uh, is a good question. And it's probably nurses, poor old nurses, that have been given the job, um, contrary to the ethos of their profession as well, given the job to hold the stuff up to the mouth of mm. the poor old patient that can't pick it up for themselves. So mm. I'm not sure there's a distinction there. But. No,
1: that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, in the end, someone has to execute the act. So it's either the doctor or the or the medical professional. Um or it's the patient themselves but the patient obviously needs assistance and so there you get assisted suicide is when the doctor has prepared the concoction i've heard of uh, people uh, in fact i've interviewed
0: um, people whose family members have um, been assisted to kill themselves in germany and other places Um, and some of the the stories are they 've done it by themselves and it's been later discovered it took them like a day or two oh, yeah, yeah. agonizing mm.
1: because it just wasn't done properly Yeah, but now you're talking facts you see in the, in this in this uh, debate my, my mistake. <laughs> yeah, in, this, in this debate all we ever do is we hear about the you know the peaceful pill mm. and how it's all going to be a very soothing yeah. and, and beautiful process dignified if, if dignified if, death if humans were so excellent, at being able to kill another human with uh, uh, poisons and the like, why is it that in America that there are all these states that are uh, repealing their capital punishment laws because of mm. the implication for the, the person who's being executed? Because it's messy, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, complications are a real issue here, but it never gets discussed. It's inconvenient. Can the question be
0: asked about euthanasia for those people in pain or a lot of pain who just want to be out of pain, comparing that to the palliative care option, which allows the person to receive morphine, which takes away the pain and can lead to someone passing away from the morphine?
3: Well, yes. Well, Catholic moral theology and even others used to speak of the principle of double effect, where you do one thing for a certain reason, and you get a secondary outcome. Uh, That that wasn't intended. Well, that's right, and to keep it from being airy-fairy, my mother, right, some years ago, died of a uh, kind of a slow, painful death of cancer. She had morphine, right? Uh, Well, the idea of morphine is pain relief, but sometimes it can have the secondary impact of hastening death. That Well, if you're a good doctor, that's not why you administer it. You're trying to relieve the pain or at least as much as you can. Uh, But sometimes that can be another impact from it. So um, part of it has to do with your intention. You know, what is your aim? And that's really the heart of the euthanasia debate. It's what is your intent? Is it to deliberately and perhaps prematurely take the life of a person? Mm. The intention there Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. to take a life. Whereas normally administering morphine for pain relief, that is not your Mm -hmm. Mm intention. And
1: um, during the inquiry, we had uh, evidence taken from uh, Philip Nischke, very well-known, high-profile euthanasia. Uh, Mm Ideal. Yes, uh, proponent and, in fact, practitioner, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, he said to the committee, his words, not mine, that it's very hard, it's very hard to kill someone with morphine, hence why he doesn't use it. So this whole talk about people dying of morph- morphine is yet another uh, myth. If it is properly titrated by a specialist, uh, it does not hasten a person's uh, death. The problem is that a lot of family members have seen their family, their, yeah. their, their, their relative die. Yeah perhaps in a short period of time after they've received an injection of of morphine. And they immediately connect the injection with the death rather than understanding that the injection has helped them to have a a peaceful, a calm, uh, a relaxed uh, death. But it wasn't the morphine injection that killed them Mm. because it was properly titrated, but it made them comfortable during that time. What's titrated mean? So you basically start low in your dosage, and then you continue to, to up as is required, and that, that is controlled carefully by the by the by the experts. I mean, mm. that would be uh, Phil's field, really.
2: So, mm. adjusting your doses in real time based on how the patient's responding. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and how often uh, is it the case that there's not enough morphine to manage the pain? Is there always enough?
2: I I, I think. You know there are there are genetic reasons sometimes we inherit so-called polymorphisms in genes that are, in, are important in mediating pain relief from morphine and you might be one of those very unlucky people who, who don't get any benefit from morphine or codeine wow. but um you know it's a pretty small percentage of people
1: and there would be other drugs that would be available for that person yeah yep. but it may be a uh, a future uh hello talk to get a, um, a palliative care specialist on who okay. yeah. would be able to give you some of those different conditions and the different types of drugs. Because we always talk commonly about morphine, but there's a number of other ones that would be available that they yeah. would use in different circumstances. As Phil has said, sometimes a person might not be a suitable candidate for morphine. Mm. Now, let's switch from uh, facts, evidence, data
0: and logic to politics and propaganda and partisanship. Um, and I don't know how many other p-words I can introduce, but uh, the the battle lines are typically drawn fairly early on. Um, I'm actually going to ask: Are there undecided people in the West Australian Parliament right now? Genuinely undecided, could go either way, depending on the merits of the arguments they they hear. Yes,
1: definitely. How many of them would there be? Uh, look, in rough, in rough numbers this is this is very rough exercise but i would put them into thirds so you'll have a third okay you'll have a that third, many you'll have a third of people that will no matter what proposal gets put up it could be the most inherently unsafe regime that's ever been put together they're voting for it are they the people driving this yeah, absolutely they they, they want they? a who range... are the ringleaders well, point, <laughs> i think i think that in the western australian media it's very obvious who the the, the ringleaders are and uh, they just want a re- regime in. Mm. Uh, then you're gonna have a third of people who, no matter what proposals they put up, they're not gonna vote for it. I mean, I, I'm definitely one of them. And, and the reason why I say that is because I know that it is impossible, it's a legal impossibility to protect people from involuntary euthanasia mm. as soon as you allow voluntary euthanasia. So it wouldn't matter what regime they put up. I know that it's inherently unsafe. There will be casualties. And then you'll have a third of people who are genuinely undecided, and most probably, in fairness to them, it will be because they have not had the time to think through all of the issues and look at all the research, because this is not a topic that people ordinarily talk about. You know, when, mm-hmm. you, when you go and have a barbecue on a Saturday with your friends, mm-hmm. how many times during your childhood, did you ever talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide? I'd, yeah. I'd hasten to suggest it might be zero. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's normal. So, uh, for and I love politics, but I don't think we've discussed it around any barbecues.
2: No, exactly.
1: And so uh, it's normal that a member of parliament, when they're newly elected, won't have thought about these issues. They won't have had a history. in it. Indeed, that was my story. When I came in in 2009, this was not a topic that I was uh, uh, expert on. Uh, But there was a bill that came into the Parliament on this, and so within 12 months you very quickly had to come up to speed because no one's going to tell you how to vote, you've got a conscience vote on this one. Mm. Uh, So then you do your research, and that bill was defeated 24 to 11. So very practically, uh, what can
0: a West Australian do to influence their local representative, their candidate, or their upper house uh, members to vote for justice and for uh, against
1: the, the yep. fallacy that there's any such thing as a good law for euthanasia. So every Western Australian has one lower house representative and six upper house representatives. Every Western Australian has that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: they should be communicating with those seven members of parliament that represent them. There's absolutely no point in sending an email or registering a phone call or trying to have a meeting with a representative from another region. You're wasting their time and you're wasting your time. But if you are communicating with one of your seven representatives, that's all you can do. And all Western Australia. What's an can effective
0: way that that communication happens? I'm under
1: the impression that trying to
0: argue with them is a waste of time. Um, rather, just registering this is what
1: it takes to represent me. It will depend on the on the individual. So, uh, say for instance, someone wants to communicate with me. Uh, they would be best off just registering what their opinion is it, clearly in my case that well, would be wasting you've got their a well-formed time, opinion. Uh, trying yeah. to persuade me otherwise because with all due respect to them I will have spent many many countless hours and weeks and months uh, researching this um, sadly enough but that's just been uh, uh, my lot yeah uh, but for uh, there will be many other MPs who who won't have had that opportunity or, or desire or passion and Uh, Yes, you could sit down and uh, try and persuade them. There would be no problem with that. If somebody just wanted to write a brief email Mm. without being
0: experts on the topic, what do you think the main concerns they should register with
1: undecided um, parliamentarians would be? If it was me, I would send a simple message out to say that in every other jurisdiction there have been wrongful deaths. So why would we want to do the same thing in Western Australia? Why would we want to create a regime where casualties are guaranteed. I, I would not complicate it much further than that because the reality is the other side cannot rebut that. They they can ignore it. Uh, they can lie, but they can't rebut it. Uh,
0: why do the media promote heavily the arguments on one side of this debate? Um, and is there any hope of... Do you feel the anti-position, the, the the negative position, has been adequately represented?
1: It never is in the media. No, it never, never is. But remember, the media is really effectively the same now in 2019 that it was in 2010 when we last had the debate. And the, the bill was defeated then, 24 votes to 11. So really, irrespective of what the media do or don't do, uh, Where Western Australians are best off uh, sending their advocacy is to the members of parliament. Don't try and win over the journalist. Mm. Uh, The journalist is looking for the popular story to try and sell as many newspapers as possible. Mm. Uh, You're best off uh, communicating directly with your representative.
3: Mm. Any thoughts on the
0: mainstream
1: media, Bill?
3: Well, we know on this and every issue uh, they are of the left simply because the majority in the media are leftists. And we have all kinds of studies and surveys that prove that very point. Mm. You know, how many here voted Labor and so on are are members of the Labor Party in the media. So, yeah, you're not going to get far with the media. Um, We were talking the 30-30-30 mix in politics. You could step back and look at society at 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 the larger uh, point of view, probably on this, on so many issues, you'd have about 10% hardcore pro euthanasia another 10% hardcore anti-euthanasia, and probably a good 80 to 90% of, well, Western Australians or Australians as a whole who really don't know where they stand. So if it comes to voting on something, or at least Well, your voters determine who becomes your elected representative if you're trying to reach them. You're not going to reach that 10 to 15% hardcore pro-euthanasia, but you do have this very large group in the middle who really don't know where they stand, and we need to give them the arguments. And again, it's hard to do. As we just said, the media is basically pushing one side. So you get the alternative media, you get your own websites, you get your own books, you have uh, pro-life groups. Well, we have to do all we can to get that great bulk in the middle who probably could be persuaded if they actually heard some good arguments and they're not going to get it from mm-hmm. the SBS, mm-hmm. ABC, and so on. Interestingly, in the inquiry that we had
1: over the 12 months here in Western Australia, and this is a, a, a piece of information that really hasn't got out into the mainstream media at all, the majority of submissions that were received, and there were more than 600 that were received, the majority were opposed, mm-hmm. and yet... 70, uh, It was approximately 60, 40. And uh, uh, that fact is never, ever uh, discussed in, in, in the media. Oh, well, um, it's just ignored, and yet you still have... What's 70. a normal kind of response, submissions, uh, qu- normal quantity of submissions to a... Oh, no, manager. any of that. No, 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 very, very, I'm, I'm on an inquiry at the moment on a completely different piece of legislation and uh, I think there's, you could count how many submissions on one hand. Really? So you know, it really depends on the issue naturally. I mean, in fairness, this is a very emotive issue. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, but th- that's an extraordinary amu- amount of uh, submissions. And as yep. I say, the majority were opposed. Yep. So that's an inconvenient fact. So it just gets ignored. Mm. This is also an inquiry where the, the minutes, remember I said earlier that I was the only one of the eight members to be on, on uh, at every hearing and every meeting. Um, the minutes of the meeting have been suppressed and this is highly, highly irregular under the uh, normal conventions of the parliament for these committees. Those minutes are always uh, released and made publicly available. Uh, I, to the point of I moved a motion in the parliament to try and have them released and the motion was defeated. The government made sure that the motion was, was defeated. So, What are they trying to hide? Well. Surely that's the obvious well, I, question. I, I obviously know the answer to that question, but I'm prohibited from discussing what's in the minutes. Hence really? why it would be good to have it out there. But uh, So not only do they suppress the minutes, they suppress you even talking about well, it. Well, in fairness, it is it is right that a Member of Parliament who's on a committee is not able to, to reveal what has happened in the committee other than what's on the public record. That's a normal standard practice. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Good. And I think that's an important... Uh, A convention for the parliamentarians to maintain uh, to uphold the integrity of the committee process Mm -hmm. but it is not ordinarily the case that the minutes are revealed except Mm. for this committee tied Uh, up in secrecy yeah Mm. Bill
0: what ideology philosophy worldview is driving or frequently found at the root of these kinds of agendas
3: Mm. Well, again, we can do the secular or the religious take on this. I mean, they end up at the same place, but uh, uh, obviously what we call the secular humanist kind of worldview that dominates the media, that dominates much of the judiciary, much of our politics. And there's good reason for that. Uh, Had we a bit of time, I was part of the, the, the hippie culture, the radical 60s in my youth. I had a bit of a wild youth. And we were quite deliberate. I can't picture that. <laughs> we targeted politics. We targeted journalism. You know, we took courses and all these things knowing we wow. had to take over. If we wanted to win, you know, we gave up the external revolution with guns and we decided internal evolution with, well, the long march through the institutions is how one famous Italian Marxist put it. Get into the institutions. Take them over from within. And that's this whole secular humanist world view and sadly that's exactly what's happened in the last 40 or 50 years. So that's one way to look at it. If you're a Christian, well, there's this famous proverb that says all those who hate me, that is God, love death. Mm -hmm. There's a correspondence between those who hate God tend to, well, you know, what is Jesus said about the devil? He comes to kill and to destroy and to steal. That
0: proverb is observable.
3: Oh, well, absolutely. Well, he uh, it was a Chesterton talked about the uh, the principle of uh, one of the most verifiable things we have is the, the idea of original sin that we tend to, you know, we can see it everywhere on display. And, and I think this is your perfect example. Do you have on fire, dedicated, godly Christians pushing the pro? I mean, sure, you got some radical lefty religious types who always get but you know, who's mostly driving this? They tend to be atheists or secularists and very hostile. Well, as we said, Singer, great example. Really dishes on uh, religion, the Judeo-Christian worldview. So there is that whole correspondence going on there.
0: I want to give all of you a chance for a final statement or comment before we uh, wrap up this evening. But there's one final question, and it's just so practical. I, I want to include it. Um, and Nick, this is your your court, how do I find out who my representatives are and how to contact them? Yeah, Um, great
1: question. It is a great question. Uh, Well, I'd be quite happy for anyone who wants to do advocacy on this to contact me if they're unsure. So they can always email me, and obviously my details are very easily accessible from the parliament website. Um, But if you go on the parliament website, there's also a mechanism there for you to effectively put in your postcode and then it will tell you who your representatives are so there isn't there is a facility online but if all else fails contact me and i'm quite happy to point them in the right direction can we put your contact details beneath absolutely the video no problem okay so you
0: can have a look beneath the video uh description and there'll be links on on how to contact nick there nick let's start with you and we'll go go down the line um final thoughts final Uh, comments on the logic, the merit, your arguments appeal to the
1: audience? Yeah, Um, well the final thing that I'll say is that the stakes are very high here. Mm -hmm. The the, the stakes cannot be higher than creating a regime where if it goes wrong there's no second chances. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know from the international experience and indeed from our own Australian experience that there will be casualties. So this is not just a case of theoretical risks This is the known lived experience in Australia and other jurisdictions that tells us that casualties are guaranteed. And in those circumstances, the risks are far too great. Why? Because the consequences are are final. So I would really just implore any Western Australian who's prepared to be clear headed about this matter and consider the overwhelming facts that they contact their representative. Film. Yeah,
2: um, I guess as an academic, I'll, my instinct is to recommend people go and read a book. And the book right. I would recommend, uh, if you're on the, even on the pro-euthanasia side, I think you have to read Robert J. Lifton's The Nazi Doctors, um, which is a classic. Uh, Robert J. Lifton was a uh, psychiatrist from, I think, New York. And uh, he realised in the 1970s that many of the doctors in the... Third Reich were reaching the end of their lives and he went and conducted serious sort of robust scholarly interviews with all the surviving doctors and subjected them to sort of psychoanalysis basically wow. to try and work out what was driving them, how did they go from being healing profession uh, into killing profession in the Third Reich. Mm. And I know we're not supposed to bring up the N-word and people get very upset about that, but just read Dr Lifting's book, because it's, a, it's one of the most chilling books I've ever read, but also one... And, and a lot of it, he believes, the madness of the Third Reich really was a consequence of... In the 1890s, German professors started writing scholarly books defending euthanasia, and it just creates this corrupt societal uh, environment, and who knows what sort of crazy economic and political crises our societies are going to go through. Just as Germany did... In, in the failure of the Weimar Republic uh, in, in the 20s and 30s. We don't know what's ahead of our society. Let's not um, leave ourselves vulnerable to these mad reactionary political movements by transgressing a really sacred value, of, of the value of every human life, by legalising some people to kill other
0: people. It's a great recommendation because it, it's, it's established wisdom that those mm. who mm-hmm. are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it yeah. exactly and that's a section of history that we swore as a planet never mm. again yeah yeah uh for good reason yeah. phil well, obviously well, a, another book you should read well that's right <laughs> another
3: one i think it's cheaper than lit- <laughs> anyway yeah. and it's easier to get than lit- yeah. but, uh, yeah. it's but it's fucking in print now is it good <laughs> good yeah. uh, i got a copy Look, I tend to always run with the bigger picture. Uh, What we're doing in a sense here is looking at the smaller picture. We want to keep euthanasia from being legalized in WA. Very important issue. Uh, But as part of a much bigger uh, battle, uh, and sadly, politics tends to flow downstream from culture. Mm -hmm. So if your culture is largely secularized and predisposed to death and destruction, well, guess what? It's gonna manifest in politics, in legislative decisions, in votes, in parliament. So in a sense, the bigger battle lies outside of all of the tremendous work that Nick and others are doing. And it's something all of us have to get involved in. And that's the big picture of the long term. Uh, I mentioned the, the long march through the institutions that Gramsci talked about. They, they knew it was gonna take a long time for this to happen. But a lot of us think, oh, well, I I signed a petition once on euthanasia, so I kind of did my bit for the year. Uh, No, that's actually not going to cut it. We have to be involved for the long haul. We have to fight this battle like mad, but we have to fight a whole lot of other things, Mm -hmm. part of the bigger challenge that we face. So, uh, yeah, just, you know... um, your rest will come in the next life, but now we've got a lot of work to do. And I always mentioned Wilberforce, right? Spent 46 mm. years fighting the slave trade. Three days before he died, he finally saw the fruit of his labors. So wow. I'm not sure anybody here has been fighting even Nick for 46 years on this one. Wow! So we've got a lot of work yet to do. And uh, by God's grace, we may win a few.
0: Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much gentlemen for your company Uh, on the couch tonight. Uh, Apologies, we couldn't find a couch. Uh, But um, I only had so much excess baggage I could bring on the flight. Um, Thank you very much to the Talk Partners for your partnership and your making these kind of uh, interviews and ongoing work uh, possible. And if you'd like to become a Talk Partner uh, or if you'd like to subscribe to my newsletters, um, you can check all of these uh, videos out, as well as a whole lot more, at Uh You can also follow me on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Dave And I strongly encourage you to subscribe to the emails, because I expect to be kicked off social media any day from now. It'll be our only means of communication, and uh, I really don't bombard your inbox, so it will be... Uh, useful uh, for you there. There's lots of previous episodes. You can um, have a look at the interview I've done already uh, with Bill Muhlenberg on this. We actually take apart and uh, forensically analyse Andrew Denton's, one of his, uh, his speech to the the National Press Club. Um, And that's a a great thing because he actually gets to talk um, about uh, euthanasia and his arguments for and then Bill answers them one by one, carefully and methodically. So there's good resources on uh, the Talk website that go back a long way, um, that uh, perennial subjects such as euthanasia just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Now, speaking of important subjects, uh, I have to mention that (coughs) I've written an article and a a call to arms recently uh, about what I think is the single most important election issue facing us ahead of the west sorry not the west australian election the federal election and that is the labor party's uh decision to make abortion a federal issue uh, and they've decided that uh, federalism no longer matters and the laws of south australia and new south wales must be changed by tanya Plibersek, and uh, they're going to legalize uh, liberalize abortion around the nation build an abortion clinic in tasmania and make the procedure free everywhere which uh, they're fooling themselves if they think it won't uh, result in more Uh, yet again we see the enemies of christianity god and western traditional values uh, attacking life and advocating death and surely this is an issue that requires every single person of good conscience to no longer sit on the sidelines, but to get involved. We need at least a 1,000 people in every electorate Mm. to write to their candidates, not just the ones they like, but even the ones they disagree with, and register your values. Become an undecided voter genuinely Mm. and make sure that the person who is going to best represent your vote, your values, doesn't only get your vote, but gets your full support to win the election. And that's the only way we're going to make politicians work for us instead of being taken for granted. And that's their job. And uh, so thank you for watching and uh, hope you uh, subscribe to the emails and I'll see you in the next episode.